Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, the highlights of Series 12, Idris Elba on his wine epiphany, Dr. Jamie Good on wine faults. We focus on two of the great regions of France, Alsace for Pinot Noir and Bordeaux for its sweet wines. We uncork the wines of Uruguay and why Provence Rosé isn't just for summer sipping. We start with how you can spot a wine fault and what might be causing it. Some faults are just crashingly awful, mousiness being my number one. Others are far more difficult to pin down, with cork taint arguably the most notorious of them all. Dr Jamie Good has written a book on the subject and he ran me through around a dozen different faults and began by explaining why wine is so complicated. Well, the thing about wine is that we're dealing with a biological product. It's a product of fermentation. It's a microbiological product. But more than that, at the very heart of what makes wine interesting is the fact that it's so astonishingly diverse. You've got this wonderful matrix of different places, because grapes grown in different places invariably produce wines that taste different. You've got the, the sort of like the scale of terroir, the scale of these these site-specific differences as well, ranging from a small plot to a whole region. And then laying on top of that, you've got the fact that every vintage is different. And so suddenly you've got this incredible array of flavours and tastes, um, which may have their genesis in the vineyard. It might be the way that the wine's made. It might be decisions made by the wine grower about when to pick or uh, you know, it might be whether there have been faults or um, sort of uh, you know, threats during the growing season, you know, hail or, or abnormal temperatures. And then, you know, the, the actual drinking consumption moment itself is, you know, we're all different. We're all a little bit different. Our biology is a bit different. And we each differ from day to day. You know, I might have a day where I taste a wine and it tastes fantastic. The same wine the next day I might not appreciate in the same sort of way because I've changed. So this makes wine astonishingly complicated, and that's what I mean. I think it's part of the appeal of wine is its complexity, but it's also for those who like to iron things out and have everything neatly pigeonholed, wine must be incredibly frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful complexity. I mentioned a wine being corked, and that is, I guess, probably the most well-known, the most famous of them all. Tell us um, what's going on here. So... You know, cork taint is is kind of um, the, 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 the one fault. Well, it's not the only fault, but it's one of the faults that when you can detect it, it's always bad. 
there's never a positive moment for cork taint. And what's happening is that corks are made from cork bark. They grow on cork trees in forests, largely in Portugal and Spain, but other places as well. And this bark is harvested. You know, if you look at a piece of harvested cork bark, it's not uniform. And there's all sorts of little holes and bits of imperfections, if you like, in the cork itself. And in those imperfections, you have all sorts of colonies of microbes and fungi and bacteria growing. And during the cork production process, um, some of these fungi are present. Um, they, they make a range of compounds, um, including one that's called um, 246-trichloroanisole, um, which is, um, um, you know, you can, I don't want to get into too much detail, but it's, a, it's something we're incredibly sensitive to, and it's got this very musty smell. So if any of these, these bugs are in that cork bark that's ended up in the neck of your bottle, then there's a very good chance that even trace quantities of this T TCA molecule will have got into the wine. We can detect it at super low concentrations of around five nanograms, which is like, that's really, that's like um, a very, very tiny quantity per litre. So it's the same quantity as a couple of drops of this substance in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. We're exquisitely sensitive to it, and it, it ruins the wine. It makes it go musty. And it was a huge problem in the 90s especially because... And what happened is the numbers of wines that were bottled increased, especially because new regions took off. And so it went up to about 18 billion bottles a year. And at that time, there weren't any alternative closures. Cork was the only closure. So the, the forests were stretched. The quality level went down a bit. And the increase in contamination meant that there was almost a crisis in Australia. For instance, there are estimates that between 7 and 10% of all wines were damaged by the cork, either through um, oxidation or through um, you know, cork taint. So that led people to move away from cork as a closure towards alternative closures, which is why today we've got a range of different closures, sealed bottles, ranging from natural corks to technical corks, which are corks that have been cleaned up, made of little fine granules of cork and then glued back together again without taint, um, through to synthetic plastic corks, which had a good moment, but which now are on the decrease, um, to screw caps, which are widely accepted and are, are dominant in some countries like New Zealand and Australia. And so, yeah, cork taint has been a real problem. And, and it's the, the rise of the screw caps in particular scared the life out of the cork industry, and they've tightened their act up significantly. So your chances of getting a cork-tainted bottle now are much less than they were 20 years ago. Very occasionally I come across it still, but it's much rarer than it used to be. Yeah, you're so right about it being rarer these days. If you went to a country like New Zealand, they might just say, well, just use screw caps. Don't use cork. Yeah, and in some ways for many wines, I think it's a great option. But the, the, the complex thing here is that the nature of the closure actually affects how the wine develops after it's been bottled. And this is a very complicated area to, to delve into, so I'm a little bit scared to. But I'll say that some people prefer the way that wines taste when they're aged under cork, because corks a good cork, that is, you know, without any taint, because corks aren't completely neutral. They release small quantities of compounds called phenolics that then affect how the wine ages. And also they have certain properties about how much oxygen they'll allow in. Very, very little, but just tiny amounts. Whereas a screw cap with a a metal lining in the in the in the lid, a tin sound lining they call it, that basically is in pretty much inert, doesn't allow any oxygen in. And so 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 some wines taste a little bit different depending on which closure's been used. And you know, so we're talking like small differences, but they exist. So mm. I think yeah, screw caps are great. I uh, I drink a lot of screw cap wine. I actually quite like 
court because the way that the wines develop under them, I think, can be quite interesting. But then it's only some wines. Other wines develop much better under a screw cap. It's a fascinating discussion. Dr Jamie Good on wine faults, and there's plenty more where that came from in episode 137, Essential Listening, with faults I confess I'd never even heard of. An historic region with a distinctive identity all of its own, Alsace is also evolving all the time. Though 90% of production is white wine, it's forging a new reputation for red, exclusively from Pinot Noir, and also for organic and biodynamic winemaking. Two pioneers of biodynamic viticulture, Olivier Humbrecht, or MW, of Domaine Zind Humbrecht, and Véronique Mouret of Domaine Mouret, uh, joined me to talk about Alsace and its new face. And we started off talking about the evolution of Pinot Noir. It's a grape variety that's been in Alsace for a very, very long time. And you can find a lot of diverse style of um, uh, Pinot Noir going from um, um, a lighter, fruitier, not so deep in colour uh, style of red wine, something that a uh, local restaurant would serve um, uh, slightly cool. Um, for earlier drinking, and then you can find on the best vineyard sites, and and, and that's more for Veronique to, to <laughs> reply, because they are the big specialists in Alsace for, for red wine. Uh, on, on the best hillsides, uh, especially some Grand Cru's, uh, uh, you can find really deep, uh, um, uh, concentrated, but yet elegant, which is a style of Pinot Noir, a type of red wines. And uh, with that... Uh, textbook Pinot Noir Patina that you can get uh, um, uh, on the palate. So yes, the region is producing more and more red wine and very successfully, yes. The climate has changed since the, the 70s and it helps us today uh, in Alsace to achieve the maturity in the tannins uh, of, for the Pinot Noir. So of course it has helped, but also what has changed is the, the man has changed and uh, Pinot Noir used to be uh, as the only red wine in Alsace it used to be something that we maybe people didn't really a winemaker didn't uh, really think about it or they didn't uh, um, ask themselves what can I do better in my way in the vineyard in my way of working in cellar for doing a great red wine because in their mind, in our mind, it was more uh, like a rosé or um, something easy to drink. And now uh, the youngest generation, uh, they all, everybody was uh, working uh, or was student in other regions of France or other countries. And when uh, they come back in their family estate, they also want to do something uh, with the red wines. So uh, it's, um, it's not only the, the climate, but also the, yeah, the, the people who has changed. And it's true that we still have some uh, great terroir to find uh, where we can have more Pinot Noir. It's also worth saying that for those who love Burgundy, but find that Burgundy is extremely expensive these days, Alsace offers a value for its Pinot Noir, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, the fact that Burgundy is today so expensive and so uh, difficult to buy for a wine lover, 
helps us because uh, the people who, are lo who love Pinot Noir from Burgundy, they just come to the other region. And when they come in Alsace, they, uh, they say, uh, they, they try the Pinot Noir and they, usually they like it. And it's, it has changed. Uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, we already had some Pinot Noir uh, in the estate. But when people came, they didn't want to taste it. We were almost, uh, we forced them to try the, the Pinot Noir. And today it's different. Some people, uh, some sommeliers or uh, wine lovers, they are coming at the estate to taste the Pinot Noir. So uh, we really see that uh, something new is happening. Yes, I bet you do. Um, and I want to talk about uh, biodynamic uh, viticulture to both of you. Um, I, I think for those um, listening who are um, not so familiar with, um, I think most people know what organic means, and organic is the stage you go through in order to be biodynamic. Um, but um, Olivier, would you mind um, just explaining to someone who's not familiar with what biodynamic means, uh, what it entails, please? That's a very complicated question. I know. <laughs> How much time do we have? Um, what people forget, it, I mean, I, I always say to introduce uh, biodynamic, as you say, you have to be uh, organic. And organic basically is not using any chemically made uh, uh, product. Um, but this is just, it's not a philosophy. It's not uh, an attitude towards the vine. It's, it's just respecting some rules, you know, which are very, very good if you try to, you know, uh, lower uh, pollution, uh, health, uh, increase health of the people working in the vineyard and drinking the wines and so on. What people don't realize is a vineyard is not something natural. You know, we are forcing a plant to produce grapes. This plant by nature doesn't want to produce grapes. So we have to prune it in winter to provoke um, uh, the buds to become uh, fertile for the following year. We are planting the vine next to each other, uh, sometimes almost touching each other on very rocky soils, very poor, uh, with not much uh, organic matter into the soil and so on. And that's not the favorite place a vine likes to grow, you know, and all that to make good wines. But the plant doesn't produce grapes to make good wines. The plant produces grape as a survival mechanism to ensure, you know, the continuation of the species. So the biodynamic philosophy is to bring back to the vine all the energies that participated to the creation of uh, uh, the species, the vine, according to energies coming from the soil, coming from, from uh, uh, the, the, the space, um, and also creating an environment around the vine, a little bit like if you're trying to create a beautiful office for people, you know, with some green plants, lights, uh, uh, space, good temperature. It's the same thing that we're actually trying to create uh, uh, in a vineyard. And for that, we use um, uh, specific uh, preparation, mostly plant-based, to bring back uh, certain messages and energies uh, to the vine to make her understand that it's okay to produce grapes, it's okay to go through flowering, it's okay to ripen the grapes very, very well and to go to the end of it. And also creating an environment uh, uh, that includes, you know, uh, a biodiversity. It, it means also taking care of the soil, bringing all what the vine needs in the soil uh, in terms of life, in terms of uh, nutrients, and basically also to allow the vine to produce 
uh, grapes with the taste of the place, which is something very, very important. Because ultimately, we could very well plant vineyard into a, a, a greenhouse on gravels just fed by, you know, uh, uh, chemical fertilizers. And you can also produce grapes and wine uh, like that, you know. But that's not what you want to drink, because wine is not just an alcoholic beverage. It's the result of a place with a originality, a specific taste, a culture also. And uh, for us, uh, uh, um, for all the biodynamic wine producers, that's the ultimate goal. And Véronique, um, you make life perhaps arguably slightly more difficult for yourselves uh, by being biodynamic in terms of the cost and the processes and the amount of care and attention that must go into um, a vineyard. Um, uh, I can see Olivier smiling at, at, at that uh, statement. But um, uh, Veronique, um, why do you do it? Uh, first, we do it uh, because the, the vineyard is uh, our future also. So we have to take care of the vines, of the plant, but also of the soil, because uh, it's a part, it's our heritage first, and then it's also the heritage of our uh, children and of or of the next generation. Uh, so uh, it's important in uh, winemaking and viticulture, you don't see only today. Uh, okay, you can produce today, but uh, the the other the question is: Are you going to produce in a few years? Uh, so it's uh, we 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 turn to biodynamic uh, viticulture to preserve the soil, to preserve the water also, uh, so the river because it's the the water that we are drinking and that our children will drink <laughs> in the future. Uh, and we choose it also to protect uh, ourselves and our team uh, because it's uh, important when you are organic that you don't use uh, these uh, weed killers or so that are uh, not good for your for human health. Uh, so this is the this is the reason. And also we, I'm thinking about my grandmother because when she she was. When I was a kid, she was always using uh, some herbs uh, as herbal tea when she was sick, when she was uh, when she had stomach troubles, or when any for any reason she has an herbal tea, and she was going in the uh, in the forest also to take them. So in a certain way, it's today what we are doing because we also using uh, herb herbs uh, preparation to have a vineyard that is in a good uh, condition to yeah, a good else. Véronique Mouret. Well, Bordeaux must be the world's most famous wine region, yet its historic sweet wines are sometimes overlooked these days. But not by the drinking hour. We dedicated an entire episode to them with Jean-Jacques de Bourdieu, co-president of the Sauterne and Barsac Appellations, and Mathilde Acereto, owner of Chateau Cancanon. Jean-Jacques gave us an introduction to the production zone. So we are in the in 40 kilometres in, in the south uh, east of Bordeaux, and actually at, at the border of the beginning of the land forest. 
so the land forest is, is starting in Gironde and not in the land. Uh, and it's uh, this forest is a bit higher than the vineyard, higher and colder. So it means, first of all, that we are in a cold place. Uh, maybe one of the coldest places of the, all the, the Bordeaux vineyard. Also, our, our vineyard is um, crossed uh, by a little river called the Siron, which is um, a 100-kilometer river uh, under trees. So that's why the, the Siron River is, is quite cold. And uh, when it's joining the, the river Garonne, especially in September, October, in the Barsac village, uh, it's really making a, a thermical shock. Uh, producing um, fog. Uh, that's how um, I think the Sauterne ID, I mean, the sweet wine ID starts in Sauterne. I, I, I think it's easier to, make, to, to get botrytis here than in any uh, other place. Even when there is no rain, uh, we had a good recent example in 2022, last year. We had a, a kind of... A, very dry uh, July and August months, and even September. But we made a Sauterne thanks to the fog, and that's how Botrytis finally came and uh, allowed us to um, to make our uh, uh, classical uh, sweet wine. So uh, microclimate is, uh, is a reality here, but it's also um, a big uh, mission in terms of protection because we are not that far from the city. Uh, and uh, Bordeaux is a nice city, but also a booming city. And uh, one of our mission as a, as a producer, as an appellation um, uh, uh, responsible, is to protect uh, the landscape and the ecosystem because uh, it's part of our taste and, uh, and history. So uh, it's, it's a big chance, but it's also um, a huge responsibility. Bordeaux is a fantastic city. I was there a month ago. I would go as far as to say it is, it might even be my favourite French city, actually. I, I really think it's got so much going for it. Really great. But anyway, that's a diversion. Let's talk about that fog, uh, because it's a very special fog. Um, and Mathilde, um, just tell us how the climate um, and that fog uh, that Jean-Jacques mentioned directly influence those sweet wines that you produce? The, when this fog happens uh, during the evening, during night, in the morning, um, you have humidity, obviously. Uh, as Jean-Jacques said, the climate is quite cool. Um, and uh, uh, during the day, because we're in Bordeaux, we have some sun. Humidity plus sun makes mushroom. Uh, we have a lot of mushrooms in the fields, but we also have mushrooms on the grapes. This mushroom is called botrytis in area, so it's the noble rot. And um, how does it work? Uh, the, the mushroom starts um, uh, colonizing the grape. Uh, you will see it because the, the, the color of the grape changes. Uh, it becomes purple, and then the grape... Um, starts drying, has a lot of wrinkles, and uh, the actual uh, job that the mushroom does is to uh, eat microscopic parts of the skin uh, of the grape and, uh, and make let the, the water that is in the grape evaporate um, so that you get a maximum concentration in the grapes 
uh, and uh, uh, a lot of aromas, uh, up to 56 different aromas that have been identified in our, in our uh, wines. It's a magical process in, in many ways. Uh, Jean-Jacques, botrytis, which doesn't sound as nice as, as noble rot, uh, but botrytis is often misunderstood. Just tell us what makes this kind of botrytis noble. Um, so, as you say, uh, botrytis is an enemy all over the world in many vineyards, especially when you have more than uh, 500 millimeters of rain per year. Usually, you have botrytis. So, of course, in uh, in Argentina, Australia is not really an issue, but in many other places, botrytis is everywhere. Actually, the spora of botrytis are in the soil, and they are reactivated by the rain. So that's why uh, here we harvest several times the same plot because botrytis is arriving in uh, two, three, sometimes four times. And we try to, to harvest every generation at the right time. So here in Sauterne, we, we dance with the botrytis in a way uh, because we try to get it at the right time. So uh, the first criteria is the maturity of the grapes. We, we try to, to get botrytis at, um, at 13, between 13 to 14 potential degree of sugar. So that's why we, uh, we, we do the deleafing uh, quite early uh, to avoid uh, that the botrytis arrive on the green grapes. So it's, it's one of the, of, the, of the rules to have botrytis at the right time. And in that case, botrytis is digesting the skin of the berry and if the weather conditions are good, it's lowering the water evaporation in the berry. Because uh, in a way, we need sun to have major berry, some rain to get botrytis because it's a fungus. And as every fungus, the, it needs some humidity. And after that, we need sun again to have the water evaporation and the concentration. Because sometimes we say that botrytis is concentrating, but actually it's, it's a non-direct uh, concentration at uh, botrytis can concentrate if the weather condition after its invasion is uh, is good. In a way, uh, in a, in a, in in one sentence, if we have um, afternoon above 22, 23 degrees, there is concentration. If it's raining during two weeks at 15 degrees, there is no concentration. So the first the first role of botrytis when things goes well is the water evaporation. The second one is um, aromatic multiplication. Botrytis is considered as, a, as an enemy by its berry, and the, the berry produce precursors of aroma to fight against the botrytis. And we scientifically know that uh, there is 50 times more precursors of aroma uh, in, a, in a berry invaded, attacked uh, by botrytis in the proper condition. So first role of botrytis, sugar concentration by water evaporation, aromatic concentration. And the third role, which is linked to the first one, is um, aging potential. Because um, when botrytis is digesting the berry, the, actually when botrytis is digesting the skin, it's also digesting the phenolic content. Phenolic content are responsible uh, for oxidation in any other wine, like red wine or dry white wine. In Sauterne, uh, there is no phenolic content anymore, tannins among other, because, thanks to the botrytis. So that's why we can keep a bottle of Sauterne one century in a cellar or maybe one month when it's open in a fridge. Uh, it's because 
of this famous botrytis or noble rot. So that's why we call it noble here because it's making the the, the grapes and the wine at the end uh, more noble than than without uh, botrytis. But actually, it's it's also for this reason that it's very risky because uh, what I just explained is a theory. Uh, in the fact, in the, in the real world, um, sometimes it's, uh, things are um, happening a bit differently. Yeah. I mean, the complex series of reactions you're talking about to produce this incredible effect, as you say, in theory, is complicated, but you know, really amazing. Um, but of course, there's a huge amount to go wrong um, there. And Mathilde, um, when you're working with noble rot, um, I, I assume um, the precision of your harvest dates um, is really absolutely crucial. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, you need uh, to have a bit of technique uh, to be able to uh, pick those uh, grapes with the triades. As uh, Jean-Jacques said, we needed to do it uh, in several times. Um, you will cut, uh, pick the grapes that are ready, and then you will wait for the others. You will come back and then pick the rest. Sometimes we can come back five, six, seven times uh, on the same row, on the same plot, and uh, uh, it requires uh, time. Uh, as you said, precision, a lot of precision. It's key for us. There is only one harvest a year, so you can't be wrong. Mathilde Aceretto of Chateau Quincarnon. Well, still synonymous with summer, rosé is emphatically a year-round wine. Those salmon pink hues just as well suited to a cold night as to a balmy one. A fellow winter rosé evangelist, Jeannie Cronk, is co-owner with husband Stephen of Domaine Mirabeau, one of the best-known Provence rosé brands here in the UK. For context, we reflected on the staggering success of Provence rosé over the past decade. Yeah, I mean, it is actually incredible, especially, I guess, against the backdrop of, you know... You know, uh, wine um, uh, struggling in other regions, etc. So, so I mean, the figures are quite staggering, especially if you look over the last ten years. So, the UK has actually grown elevenfold um, from about one million bottles ten years ago to 11, over eleven now. The US has grown sixfold, for example. So, so it really is. You know, it's a it's a fairly rare success story in wine um and and that is obviously wonderful because um we also feel like we make a product that is not only you know it's it's a bit more accessible than than a lot of you know other wines um but it also is attractive to the younger generation but also what's interesting you know it's intergenerational so you'll get people you know i mean my parents quite happily drink rosé with me and I've got, I actually have two drinking age children. So, so you know, all of us will kind of gather around a, a, a bottle of rosé. And I see that happening, you know, uh, in other situations. So I think that's a really wonderful thing that the occasion is just a bit more relaxed and invites people in, you know, from all sorts of, um, you know, also from a wine knowledge po- point of view, as you know, people are often a bit scared of wine. And rosé is just a softer approach and, and, and is a really lovely 
um, you know, start to whine even if you're if you're a bit worried about it. Yeah, it's inviting, it's accessible. And whilst, you know, we should all be careful about uh, the amount we drink, um, it is, as you say, something that is not going to um, scare the horses in terms of um, a, a, an introduction to wine. It, I, I think it was pretty much my own uh, introduction to wine back in the south of France, you know, 30-odd uh, <laughs> years ago. Um, talking of France, um, and of course, that's where you live with Stephen and your family. Um, okay. It always amazes people when I tell them that the French drink more rosé wine than they drink white wine. Yes, so they do. So so about 35% of uh, wine consumption in France is rosé. Um, white is at 22% and red at 44%. So, um, and what's going to be even more scary um, to a lot of people is that, you know, if red consumption goes on the way it's currently going, uh, rosé may well be the biggest category in a very short time. So, so that is going to be, I think, quite a, yeah, quite a moment also for French wine because, um the consumer has sort of voted and, and it's an interesting one because, uh, you know, for many years we've sort of battled to be seen as, you know, I don't want to say a serious wine, but, you know, a really well-made good wine um, that was, um, you know, something that has a place on a wine list, um, even at the best restaurants. And and it, it does seem that, you know, the attractiveness of our product um, is clear from a consumer point of view and, uh, somewhat, I think the trade um, is is it's it's important that the trade somehow understands and opens their eyes that you know there's there there is this change in in popular taste basically. Yeah, and I think you're right. Um, in this country, the consumers um, led the way, and to an extent, people I know within the trade who might still be a bit snobby about rosé, full stop, um, they kind of played catch up. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely, you know, it's it's a more difficult story to tell. You know, I definitely definitely notice that. And and I think as you, I mean, I think we'll we'll speak about it anyway, but you know, we see so many interesting wines being made around us now. People, you know, experimenting with a lot of things, you know, gastronomic rosés, you know, barrel-aged rosés. All of them though, still within, I guess, our slightly um, you know, lighter conversation, more accessible kind of, you know, way of presenting it. Um, but it, it there are wines that are just, you know, beautiful. There's some that are very easy drinking and that are aperitif and but you know, there's loads of other wines like that, loads of other wine regions that that, you know, potentially sommeliers don't feel the same way about. But you know, Rose has I believe it's place on 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 a good menu in the greatest places and 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 we we keep on adding to to you know to this adventure. Well, let's talk about some of those uh differences uh within uh Provence because um you know, uh, when you talk about Burgundy, um everybody accepts that Chablis is very different to perhaps a a Burgundy from the Côte d'Or. And yet I still encounter quite a few people who think that a rosé from Provence is one thing, and it, it's really not, is it? No, it really isn't. I mean, we've we've got we've got you know over six hundred um, producers here in Provence. So it's for starters, it's already quite a varied kind of group of people. I mean, people from all sorts of different backgrounds as well. As you know, you know some people with 
you know, also enormous amount of means have have invested here to make wine. Um, so you get some really quite ambitious winemaking going on. Um, and, uh, you know, with that come, come wines that are probably also slightly different to, to what you're used to at the moment. But people are ready um, to say, okay, you know, I've, I've now drunk the, these beautiful aperitif wines and will carry on drinking them. But actually, I quite enjoy having, you know, a, a rosé at the table. Um, and well, when I have a dinner party, you know, we'll drink something, we'll drink a magnum of, 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 of nice rosé and, you know, sometimes even an oak-aged one, um, you know, that is, I guess, quite natural as the category evolves and as people become more fair with, you know, rosé as such and have drunk Provence often for, for a fair few years, they're ready to experiment. And, and we in the region, you know, we're, we're, we've also moved on, you know, we're, we're, we're ready to experiment too. So it's, I think it's a natural, uh, you know, uh, progression really. Um, um, and that doesn't mean that we'll be, you know, we'll be turning ourselves into, into the, the equivalent of Burgundy or something like that. You know, I don't think we'll ever do this sort of micro, you know, appellation system or be, be, be so technical or so incredibly specific, you know, that's just not our, our way of communicating with the consumer. But having said that, that doesn't stop us from, from you know, trying to make really interesting wines. Yeah, and I think where uh, Provence Rosé wins uh, when I work with um, consumers at tastings is um, that there is a consistency in style, which means that if you pick one up, um, you kind of know what you're going to get. But then you have these um, nuances of difference that you can then explore and Obviously, there are different producers uh, making different wines in different styles, as you say. But there are also these um, subtle but um, definitely there regional uh, variations as well through the different appellations um, and also the sub appellations. So the Cote de Provence is obviously huge. So you've got these specific sub zones and then you've got the uh, Cote Valois and the Cote d'Axon Provence. Um, just tell us about how... Um, in you know simple terms, in layman's terms, how the the wines can differ by um, these uh, regional distinctions. Yeah, so you've already mentioned that you know the Côte de Provence, we, it's, it's twenty thousand hectares. So it's, you know it's it's not an insignificant vineyard. Um, and basically within that, as anybody who's ever been to Provence knows, you've got everything from you know the vineyards that basically touch the beach. Um, to the ones that are in the in the you know in the in the in the hills behind you know behind uh, you know the, the, the basically the um, the um, the A8 where you know the motorway that divides the Côte de Provence and two you know you've you've got just endless sort of um, places where you can make wine and some of them are really quite different so and we've got these five particular. Um, sort of uh, sub-appellations, I guess they're called, but they're more, you know, specific terroir um, conditions, mainly linked, uh, mainly linked to, I guess, you know, soil and climate, um, as you'd expect. Um, but you've got, you know, volcanic influences in in, in Frejus, for example, and then you've got the sea influences in La Lande. You've got the much richer soils um, in 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 in, the, in Piafeu, for example. So, you know, it's a really interesting interesting place to make wine. Um, and then within the smaller appellations, you've got Cote which is the smallest, um, tends to resemble, you know, the richer soils that we get in some of the areas of the Cote de Provence. You get sort of wines that have a bit more back, backbone, more power. It's got 
quite cold winters there. So, so a lot of temperature variation, whereas X is, you know, much more sort of, you know, it's, it's a colder, windier, pebbly place, lots of limestone soils, poor soils. So you get very airy, you know, very, very fresh uh, roses with a great acidity. Um, so you really have, you know, uh, you know, a nice range of different um, variations in terms of taste. But what they all have in common is that they're all dry. You know, people don't always know that, but all our wines have under four grams of sugar per liter. But, you know, every every wine I know here is much, much less, uh, you know, under one gram. So that's really important also to today's consumer. But they're super aromatic. You know, that's the great bit about it. You know, they really taste deliciously beautiful. Jeannie Cronk of Domaine Mirabeau on the wonders of Winter Rosé. To Uruguay next, and it's just possible you've never tried a wine from that country. Well, if so, you definitely should, because uh, you're missing a treat if you don't, with its cool maritime climate and small family producers. It's uh, a treasure trove for the wine lover. Who better to explain more than Amanda Barnes, author of the South America Wine Guide? You really have to think of Uruguay as quite different, you know, compared to Chile and Argentina, which obviously we're all very, you know, most wine drinkers are quite familiar with the wines of Chile and Argentina, because Uruguay has a totally different climate. So really, we're on this Atlantic maritime climate, quite high rainfall, you know, like normally over a thousand millimetres a year and quite mild temperatures. So it's, it's much more similar to the climates of Bordeaux or Galicia. It doesn't have any of that kind of arid high altitude or, you know, intense uh, sunlight that you get in most of the wine regions of Argentina and Chile as well. Uh, so you really have to kind of change, change gear when you start thinking about Uruguay and, and, and expect higher acidities, lower alcohol. And also, you know, there's great diversity beyond the climate, which, which gives all the different nuances to the wines. Um, so climate is quite, you know, pretty similar throughout Uruguay. You've got some inland wine regions, but the large majority are coastal. And then, but what you do have that makes a big difference are two other important aspects. The soils, we've got over 99 classified soil types in Uruguay. So even though it's a relatively small country, um, it has this diversity of, of, you know, very old soils, which can show great differences in the wines from like Terra Rosa in Rivera to the kind of gravels and calcareous soils in Colonia to, you know, really serious granite in Maldonado. So very diverse soils, big impact on the wines. And then the families of Uruguay, which I think are the most important. You know, you've got like about 150 wine families and they all have their own heritage and style. And the wineries of Uruguay are relatively very small. So they really do reflect the family taste and and they'll actually quite charmingly just call it their family recipe, which I think sometimes as wine snobs, we, we hate the idea of a recipe. You know, it has to be, you know, just intuition, but it is intuition. But it, it's, you know, in Uruguay, it's heritage that's passed down and, and they make wines in the style that their parents did and their grandparents did. And they make wines in the style that they like to drink. And I think that gives us a very, you know, great diverse range as well. Yeah, and you really notice that in Italy. And of course, a lot of these families will be immigrants 
from Italy, weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a really strong Italian heritage. There's also quite a strong Spanish heritage. And then, you know, you had lots of different immigrants uh, coming into Uruguay around the 1800s. This is when South America saw huge European immigration, and notably from Italy and Spain. But also, you know, you get some uh, German uh, traditions, Swiss, uh, you know, Portuguese. You, You get a whole range of people that were coming in, you know, from from Europe to make a new life in the Americas. Uh, and a lot of those, you know, traditions, they 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 keep from home. So, you know, we, we get interesting kind of Italian varieties like um, Barbera and Arne, you know, Sangiovese, which are grown. And then we've got Spanish heritage varieties like Alvarino, uh, you know, we've got Italian with Terroligo, like we've got a huge range, which have been brought from, you know, from their families or, or are made kind of in ode to their, to their heritage and ancestry from Europe. What uh, sort of difference do you think that rich tradition of family ownership makes to a, a wine culture uh, like that that you find in Uruguay? I think when it's family businesses, and we're largely talking about quite small family businesses as well, I think, you know, obviously they are, they need to be, you know, economically viable. But I think when it is a family business, there's a real passion for what you do. And you're making the wines that you're proud of. um, And it's very personal. And so I think we can really talk about how personal and intimate the wines of Uruguay are. And obviously, they change with generations. And as, you know, as the winemaker explores and learns and tastes you know there's that natural evolution but I think there's always a you know a real family style and touch to to each of the the wineries and producers and I think that's quite unique when you have larger you know more corporate productions that we get in many places of the new world you have a tendency to follow market trends and and you know other styles and you could be a bit more influenced because it is a a business at the end of the day and there's no kind of you know for better or worse, uh, family kind of pride and emotion tied into it. Um, So you definitely, in Uruguay, get a lot of that um, emotional connection to the wines, which I think make them, you know, very interesting. It also means that there are wines for every type of consumer. You know, there are certain wines that will appeal much more to certain tastes and others that that won't because they are much more personalised, if you like. Sort of idiosyncratic wines. Yeah, exactly. It's a good word for it. And uh, what sort of production volumes are we talking about here? I'm assuming um, small. Yeah. So, I mean, the other thing that changes a lot in Uruguay are the vintages. So you'd normally go somewhere between half a million litres to a million litres in total for the the whole year. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at small productions. Um, there's just less than 6,000 hectares of vines um, and yeah, so small productions and and you can have vineyard uh, wineries who have a hectare or two, and then you know some of the biggest might have two or three hundred hectares, but but not much more. Amanda Barnes on the wonders of the wines of Uruguay. Finally, to a household name whose signature discreetly sits on the labels of a wine brand he has founded with a friend, David Farber. That brand is Port Noir, and he is, of course, Idris Elba, star of The Wire, Luther, and the Nelson Mandela biopic. Did he ever imagine, growing up in East London, that he would one day 
be launching a new rosé champagne to add to his exclusive range of wines. No, I didn't, no. No, no. <laughs> no I didn't. And actually, you know, Port Noir is Port Noir, that's the name, but to put my name on it was a bit of a later decision. It was like, it, it, you know, it just felt like, you should sign it. I was like, what? Why should I sign it? It's like, well, this is your selection. Yeah. You know, put your name on it and your name is recognisable. You know, it's a bit of a collector's, you know, in that sense. Um, You've gone for a very subtle way of doing it though haven't you because your name is on the bottle but it's kind of not your brand um it's uh, it, you've chosen a, a sort of well a, a lot of people would say very classy way of doing it but but you've chosen a very subtle way of doing that haven't you that that was that was kind of key was it yeah i mean yeah we we wanted to just you know lean away from being a vanity project and it, you know it's not a vanity project and we just signed it just let the you know the 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 taste to know that this is a selection from my heart um, there's a great story behind it and it's just a little signature and on, on, on the bottom of the label but you know and, and that was good enough for me I didn't want to make a big deal of my name and that extends all the way to the to the marketing of the product you know we I'm not a grip and grin guy mm -hmm. so much with the product um, we like the idea of people to, to discover it and when they do discover it, there's probably a story attached to why they discovered it, how they discovered it. And that's what, you know, you know, rather than sort of, you know, it just told me to drink this, so I thought I'd give it a try. But they hear the podcast and go, huh, I didn't know that. I've been to same Champagne. I might get that bottle. Yeah. And the name Port Noir, how did you come up with that? Because you, you have been, uh, you didn't, you've been very involved in this from the get-go haven't you yeah no we we but it's been a team it's not you know david says i had the the vision but i think it was a vision that we sort of matured together mike i have a few companies in my business um that are attached to doorways so green door production company was my first production company and it was designed to look at inclusivity for underrepresented writers, voices, cultures and whatnot. So that was Green Door. And then I've got a record label called Seven Wallace. And Seven Wallace is an address, again, a doorway. Um, and it was a doorway when I moved back from America to England, I lived at Seven Wallace. So yeah, you get it, right? There's this mm -hmm. doorway, keys, doorways and Port Noir. Well, I guess, you know, the truth is, is that as a black man, as a, as a Anglo black, I'm the first black champagne owner in this country. And, and not in a world, because there are others, but it felt like to represent that in the title of the doorway, as in it's a doorway through. We've passed that threshold. I'm maybe the first, but not the last. And, you know, that, that felt like sort of a, a way to market. Yeah, and you would hope to encourage others yeah. like you, presumably. Yeah, well, definitely there's there's a real community of, of you know, Afro-Caribbean Afro wine producers now that's growing. Um, and, uh, yeah, to be a part of that community feels great as well. Mm. And, uh, Dave, the, the, the product itself, you know, clearly it was really important to Idris that it was it was really good. Obviously, it's going to be really important to you that it was really good. But you, you must have felt a, quite a weight of responsibility in this. The first thing Idris told me when the project started to become a bit serious was, David, you know, if there's my, if I put my name behind something, we, we need to make absolutely sure that the, the products are 
perfect. I don't want to back up anything that's uh, not up there. So yes, the, the and and you know I, I I love champagne. I love wine. So for me, it was important too. Not for the same <laughs> reasons, but so yeah, the, the selection of the product we we wanted something pristine. Also because having a celebrity na- a celebrity name attached to a product is opening a lot of doors. It can also be a dual edged sword because if uh, you know you do anything wrong, it's gonna be under scrutiny straight away. So we we really want. Uh, and, and also because we want to advertise, promote uh, the, the wine producers, the champagne uh, producers. So, you know, we, we, we want to put them in the, and, under the right lights, basically. Mm. And you're not going big volume here either. You're going for, for um, a, 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 a small masterpiece rather than a, a, a big shelf filler, aren't you? C- uh, yes, correct. Uh, again, this is uh, the, you know, maybe one of the reasons why the quality of the product is there is because you know, it's a small, very controlled production. Uh, there's a little bit more of the petit of the of the petit port, our non-vintage uh, blanc de blanc grand cru. Uh, where there's one or two other products where we might have a bit more uh, volume, but same. Where really the quality of the products is is, is the first uh, criteria of choice for us. Yeah, and Idris, you were keen to have a, a, a kind of non-vintage in the, the portfolio, a, 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 a slightly more accessible price point, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the accessibility to champagne and sort of changing the landscape of that. You know, growing up, you know, going for a bottle of champagne myself was like breaking the bank, but it was worth it. It was a big ce- uh, celebration. But I wanted to bring that threshold down a little bit with the uh, Blanc and It's a really good one mm-hmm. for... The price point it is, and I think we pride ourselves on that. And as we extend the cabinet out, we hope to, you know, replicate really good quality liquid, but at a price point that's, you know, you know, in reach. Uh, David mentioned the uh, hinted at the kind of um, uh, how carefully you have to be. There's a degree of skepticism about celebrity endorsed products. Um, how does that play in in your mind? And most celebrities said that I did it first, but I kind of was at the beginning of the cycle, you know, seven years ago, where we, you know, we didn't do much marketing and the champagne, you know, still doesn't have that sort of marketing arm to it. And partly to do with that, we just want people to discover it and taste it for what it is. The fact that it's me, great, but it's not a, it's not a drawing, which is, uh, it's a, a, a opposing to most celebrity brands that definitely lean into their celebrity to sell more volume but also as well you know i think that sometimes celebrity culture can be distracting it's just a good wine it's just good uh just so happens that you know i have a story behind the ownership of it but it's not the selling factor Mm. i want people to go this is really good i wonder where it comes from that's a great discovery to me Jancis robinson uh master of wine obe doyen of the wine world, she uh, she wrote that she was uh, somewhat sceptical, which which you know, uh, you would expect about uh, what she called a rash of celebrity endorsed wines. Uh, she then went on to describe this as uh, this is your uh, launch, this is your vintage product. The uh, this would have been the twenty ten. I'm guessing that she was talking about yeah, as thrillingly good. I mean, you must have been thrillingly chuffed at that point. I'm, oh, I'm I'm, unbelievable! I mean, you know, and and people are quite rightly skeptical about the you know liquid being endorsed by a celebrity because usually that's a transactional positioning but with that endorsement coming from someone that has that real 
respected opinion and sort of really, you know, I, I think the way that came about, it wasn't even like we forced it upon her. She was just like, okay, I'm gonna give it a try. And she did, and she was just genuine about her reaction towards it. it really blew us away you know I mean he was he was like yo <laughs> I was you know oh, that's good but no, no I'm joking I'm joking yeah. um, but it, it was really a really nice way to celebrate something you know we didn't have the hard push we weren't pushing this a celebrity culture someone really liked the wine and they told the world mm. and she's you know the most famous person in wine in the world uh, I, I think it's fair to say so you must have been uh, dead chuffed after all the, the work that had gone into it, David. Uh, yes, no, uh, that was an endorsement that we couldn't have uh, we, we couldn't have wished for more. Uh, she's she's respected, and as you said, mostly like people from the wine industry, the sommelier might might have a more negative uh, approach to um, to celebrity name wine. So having her stating that the product is amazing was was just like a a, a very good feedback i bet it was yeah um you idris you, you um obviously have a um a, a really um uh, sort of successful uh relationship uh, with, with david you must there must there's a huge amount of trust you have to put in in him with your name albeit subtle your name is still on the bottle it's still very much associated with you so there's a there's a huge amount of trust you're putting in him i, I, I guess yeah, I mean, David has been really generous with his knowledge. You know, he would always encourage me to taste for myself. It wasn't like, you know, this is great. You know, uh, he was definitely wanting me to have a more educated understanding of what we're doing here. Uh, but the trust is, uh, you know, obvious. Um, it's also just a nice way to do business when you, you know, he's the expert, you know, and I learn and but together there's a real sort of you know sort of really caring bond around the juice and the growth of the juice and sometimes you know we, we don't get on <laughs> but that's rare so, very I'm, rare i'm the grumpy french <laughs> david farber and idris elba rounding off this compilation of some of the highlights from Series 12 of The Drinking Hour. Hope you enjoyed those. Uh, thanks for listening and do join us next time for the launch of Series 13. Bye for now. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.